0: An explanation of Benefits, a patient podcast. Join J.R. Clark and Dr. J. Moore as they explore the complex intersection of healthcare and insurance. Whether you're not sure about the difference between a premium and a deductible, or looking for expert insights on the future of employee benefits, everyone can use an explanation of benefits. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. J. and J.R. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the EOB podcast, Explanation of Benefits. I'm Jay Moore, your host, coming to you from Patient. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Patient, and I'm joined once again by JR Clark, my colleague. Hey, JR.
1: Hey, Happy Jay. Day. How you doing? Happy day to you as well.
0: I've right, been nice, uh, and vague. nice and vague uh, there. Nice and vague because we record these. Who knows when we record them? We record them at at odd times and odd hours, and then we release them on a set schedule. So it looks like we're very organized, but. Uh, It could be any time like you don't know. It could be winter right now when I'm recording
1: this. It could be dark. It could be light. Any options available.
0: It's true. I also found out from our last podcast that sometimes when I click the mouse, that is you, you can hear that on the podcast. And that is crazy to me that my microphone will pick up mouse clicks. But good listener, if while we're talking, you can hear an occasional mouse click, just know that I am clicking on information that I think is important to share with you because
1: I care. And I want you to have that information. That's why I do it. And good listener. Thank you for pointing it out and listening and tolerating all of that clicking while this I know, podcast the clicking, is going. The clicking
0: the maddening, the madness of the clicking.
1: Yes, it's Like an absolutely. Edgar Allan Poe poem or something. <laughs> and the clicking never flitting still is sitting, still is sitting.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. JR is <laughs> a poet. <laughs> Who knew <laughs> they teach a poetry in actuary but, school. Yeah,
1: that's right. You've got to memorize the Raven. <laughs>
0: This is the best intro we've ever had. Um, Today, we are going to continue our conversation about the Affordable Care Act and its impact on the world of insurance. If you have not listened to our previous episode, please go back and do that because that's where we give the introduction to the ACA. And there were a few things that we talked about that the ACA did with insurance that had never really been done before, and it really changed our business. And JR, can you uh, remind me a little bit of what some of those things were just by way of uh, summary and synopsis from our last
1: conversation. Yes. Three core items, Jay. First one was medical loss ratio, which said that, you know, for a small employer or individual, that 80% of the money that they collect in premiums has to be paid out in claims. Uh, second one was guarantee issue, which means that anybody who wants to be able to buy insurance uh, has to be sold insurance. And the third item was the absence of underwriting, which meant that rates could not vary based upon the health status of a person who was getting health insurance.
0: Yeah, thanks for that reminder. I always have to go back and look those up and, and see what uh, you know what those things were. And that really had some pretty tremendous changes for the insurance agency because those were those were big changes that, that came about through regulatory action that we had not seen before and are impacting insurance today. In ways that people probably don't even realize are associated with the ACA. You know, what we talked about was that when we when we got into the ACA, you and I were both working at a big um, we were working at big national insurance carriers. And we kind of saw from the inside what that was like and what that meant for the business of the insurance company. And we thought it would be interesting to have that conversation now and talk about what that meant for insurance. It's been almost 10 years since we started ACA. And so the business has changed quite a bit. And JR, you and I have seen a lot that has changed during that time. So why don't we talk about that? Like, tell me what life was like for you as a young, wet behind the ears actuary at a major insurance company back in those halcyon days of 2013 when life was good, the sun was golden, we all went outside and swung on our swing sets. Like, life was good for insurance. What happened in 2014? What was that like for you working there?
1: Well, first, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, I'll explain that and talk about that. But you have to, before the end of the pon- podcast, explain what it means to be wet behind the ears. And you also <laughs> have to define the word. Was it halcyon? That you halcyon, said? Yes, uh, yes.
0: Yes, Yes. That, that is a new I'm one. I'm surprised for me. that as a poet, you don't know that word because it's in a lot of poetry. But I will endeavor to provide those definitions before the end of the podcast. All right,
1: thank you then. We we've, we've got a deal here. So um so let me take a step back cuz really when you think about insurance in general, like the whole idea behind insurance is pretty simple at its core. Um so you have a person on one side who says, "Hey, I have some level of risk that I'm not comfortable with and I want to offload that risk." Um, you know, kind of an example would be like, "Hey, I uh, I'm worried about it getting a dent in my car and so I want to have some form of assurance that if I get a dent in my car because I run into a telephone pole, that there's going to be somebody to pay for it. And then at the same time, you have this insurance company that's on the other side saying, hey, I'm willing to take that risk off your plate um, or at least some portion of that risk off your plate in exchange for money, right? So that's kind of the general concept behind insurance. And so generally, an insurance company likes to be able to assess the level of risk that they're taking on in order to make a decision around, like, how much are they willing to take on of that risk? And how much do they need to charge for that risk? Or do they even want to take on that risk in the first place? And that gets back to the concept from the last, um, the last podcast that we did around underwriting. I mean, that, that really is what the underwriting process is.
0: Yeah. So to put it in terms maybe that, that people are really familiar with, if you think about your house, when you go to buy a house and they send somebody out to inspect the house, and one of the things they look at is the wiring. So they might look at the wiring and say, you know, you live in an old house. The wiring is really old. You have that knob and tube wiring that was popular back in the early part of the 20th century. And that is more dangerous. There's a higher risk of fire. And so you're going to have to pay a little bit more in premium to get insurance for your house because of the fact that it has the older wiring that's in your house. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? That's what an underwriter
1: might look like. Look, look at. That's exactly right. Yeah. And even thinking of it back on the car example, like. So if if I've never run into a telephone pole, you know, in my car, like when I'm driving my car, then I might pay less for insurance because the insurance company will look at it and say, well, since he's never actually run into a telephone pole, he's probably not as likely to run into a telephone pole. But if I have a history of running into telephone poles, the insurance company might say, well, yeah, let's charge him a little bit more because he's probably going to run into another telephone pole or like the far end of it would be if like I'm regularly running into telephone poles (laughs) with my car, they're going to say... Uh, maybe we don't want to give insurance to this person. No, thanks.
0: It's bad for you, your car, the telephone company. That's just bad all the way around.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, you know, like we talked about in the last podcast under the Affordable Care Act, the whole concept of underwriting, you know, was kind of removed. It was removed from the guarantee issue side, meaning you couldn't ever turn somebody away, but also removed from the side of saying, I can't price up or down based upon if somebody runs into more telephone poles or they don't run into telephone poles at all. Um, you know, on the the car side of things, but, you know, applying that to health,
0: Right. And so what you might do is you might say, now I'm going to have to make an assumption that everybody is constantly running into telephone poles and just charge everyone insurance like that because I don't know who is and who isn't. And one thing
1: that insurance companies really hate is uncertainty. You got it. Yeah. I mean, talk about something that makes you freak out as an insurance company is taking away your ability to underwrite, you know, that that's their core secret sauce is really being able to say, I can assess risk well, and I can make a guess, a good educated guess on kind of how many people I think are going to run into telephone polls and how many people I think aren't going to run into telephone polls based upon the information that we have. Because of that, kind of that freak out that health insurers were, were doing under the ACA, you know, the federal government put into place a few programs under the Affordable Care Act to kind of like ease or temper the worries of health insurance companies Um, Well, you'll hear those referred to as the three R's. And I know, Jay, you've heard that term a lot, the three R's.
0: I have. Before you go there, can I just back up one second and just uh, like talk about one other thing, which is if we were to look at the entire population of people, every single person in the entire country, we know that there is just a certain percentage of people that have colon cancer. We know that there is a certain percentage of people that have heart disease, So if I could be an insurance company and I could guarantee that I have a slice of the population that is identical to the averages, then I might be comfortable with those risks. I might say, you know, I don't have to know because I know that 1% of all of this population is going to have some heart disease risk. And so I can just price my insurance assuming that 1% of those people have heart disease. I think that the problem that perhaps insurance companies run into is that they don't get a slice of the population that is all consistent with the you know, with the metrics that are out there. So you might get unlucky and get a slice of the population that 5% has heart disease, or you might get a population that only 0.1% has heart disease. You got it. And so that's a, you know, that's a selection kind of problem too, right? And I think that some of the R's that you're talking about rely on that concept as well. So I just wanted to back up and make sure that, that we explain that a bit too. Do you have anything to add with that? Or, or do you think I did a good job explaining that?
1: You did a great job explaining that. And I'll piggyback off that a little bit, just add one other piece to it. Because, you know, when you think about when the Affordable Act came into play, one of its main goals was really to make sure that anybody who needed health insurance had access to health insurance. But what that meant is there are a lot of people prior to that that were uninsured. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that probably were not getting care that needed care because they didn't have health insurance. And, So you just kind of don't know what is the prevalence of care that folks need that just who just aren't getting care. Like a good example would be how many folks are diabetic out there that are coping with, say, type two diabetes without going and getting insulin, without getting the regular treatments that they need. But then once they have access to getting health insurance, they're going to have the means to to get that care. And, you know, from a health insurance standpoint, it's hard to price the unknown of, of what sits out out there.
0: For sure. And from a doctor's point of view, like this can be very frustrating because you have patients who come to see you and they have health problems, but they don't have a way to pay for the care that they need. And as a doctor, you've taken an oath to help them. And so you have to figure out ways that you can provide help to them. And one of the most frustrating things as a doctor is to say to someone, this is the medicine that you need. You need to go and get this insulin. This is going to keep you healthy and have them say, I can't afford that. So now what am I supposed to do? Well, I I'm not sure. I don't know what you're supposed to do. So that that's bad. It's bad for the healthcare system. It's bad for our society in general. We don't really want people running around that uh, are unable to take care of themselves. So these are important things that you've brought up, and I'm glad we're talking about this.
1: Yeah, and I think Jay, that's a you know that's a future episode that we should do is really talking about you know kind of what is a what is a good estimate. I mean, no, there's. Like, there's not a lot of information out there around this, but what, what would be a good estimate of how much does care cost earlier versus how much does care cost later?
0: Yeah, I think we could we could look into that and see what we can find about that. So I'm sorry, I got you way off track with the three R's. That's what you were talking about before I rudely interrupted you. Um, so let's get back to that and, and have you uh, tell us about those R's and how those were meant to solve some of these problems that we've identified.
1: Yeah, so... So the first of the three hours is called risk adjustment. And this was a permanent program that was set in place at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act. And so what it effectively did was it said, hey, you know, there's some average health status or average risk of a total population that, that we'll see. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but when we get everybody involved in, in buying this insurance, we'll see what that average risk is. And there are going to be some insurance companies that tr- attract a disproportionate share of sicker people. And there are some health insurers that are going to attract a disproportionate share of healthier people. And so let's just keep it easy. If you have, you know, insurer A and insurer B that are offering coverage in the market, the whole point of the risk adjustment program was to say, hey, if insurer A gets healthier than average folks and insurer B gets sicker than average folks, uh, then insurer A has to pay some some amount to insurer B at the end of the year so that it kind of makes up for that difference in, in health status. So kind of back to the whole hitting a telephone pole example, if, you know, one insurer picks up everybody who runs into a whole bunch of telephone poles and the other one picks up all the people that don't ever run into telephone poles, well, the insurer that doesn't, has folks without running into telephone poles has to pay money to the insurer that gets a bunch of people that do run into telephone poles.
0: So this is kind of a fairness metric. This ensures that the insurance companies are, they, they have a better shot of having a level playing field for the slices of patient population that, that they have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and on that note, the whole idea of the program, and I should mention it's split up by state, um, but the whole idea of the program is it's net neutral. So, you know, if one company in the market that has a million dollars of excess, they have to pay that million dollars out. Then there's another company that's deficient a million and is receiving that million dollars so that in the end, it's kind of all net neutral.
0: Right. And so from a practical standpoint, the way that this risk adjustment works is in the doctor's office when I see a patient I take notes and I say what problems the person has, and then I submit a series of codes that goes off to the insurance company that describes what problems those people have. And for those of you who understand medical coding, these are ICD-10 codes that are being sent in that says, this person has diabetes, this person has heart failure, this person has chronic headaches. And each of those is used to establish a risk profile for a given person that might have insurance with a company. And then all of those risk profiles are added together and then divided to give an average risk profile of all of the patients that a particular insurance company has as customers. And then those risk numbers are compared one company to another. And that is what determines who becomes a payer and who becomes a receiver under this program. So that's really the nuts and bolts of how this information is captured and how it moves back and forth between the different companies.
1: Yeah, you explain that very well. Let's move on to the second one, which was reinsurance, second R reinsurance. Um, it was actually a temporary program that was installed into the ACA, you know, with the idea that, hey, let's stabilize things at the very beginning to account for folks that maybe are going to be very high cost that we don't quite know about yet. And so the program was set up and intended to be run for three years, so 2014 through 2016. And it was a program where, you know, effectively the federal government said, hey, we're gonna set a pool of money aside that we're going to collect from all health insurers all you know employer groups everybody who pays to insurance is going to pay a fee every single month for every person that's insured we're going to put all this money into a bucket and then any any health insurers that experience folks that have high dollar claims are going to get some reimbursement for those high dollar claims so the program you know, actually, the federal government collected $10 billion for it in uh, 2014, and I think it was $6 billion in 2015 and $4 billion in 2016. Where did that money come from? So that that came from a, that flat payment that folks like. So, for example, a, a health insurance company like an Anthem or United or a Cigna or a Aetna or a Humana uh, will be allocated a certain proportion of that $10 billion and they would, in turn, charge all of their employer groups. So whether it's a small employer or a large employer and all their individuals. Actually, I might be wrong on that. It might just be employer groups that funded it. I don't actually remember that side of it. But certainly, all of the folks that were insured were contributing to this big fund for reinsurance. Okay. And and the idea behind it was that they set a threshold. And initially, it was $45,000 where they said, hey, if an insurer experiences somebody who is is having a... Um, a cost that's greater than forty-five thousand dollars for a single member, then we're gonna reimburse for a certain amount above that forty-five thousand dollars back to the insurer because they're experiencing this kind of adverse adverse impact of a person
0: on their books. So this was a way to try to account for outliers that might appear in a particular plan. So that if we had someone that we didn't expect, you know, so so you get the person who is relatively healthy and then they have a bad diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis that comes out of nowhere. And suddenly they they need a bone marrow transplant. And that expense runs up to a quarter of a million dollars. So you get a few of those, and that can very quickly take the insurance company and put them into a state where they're no longer profitable, which is bad. And that might be a reason that the insurance companies would not want to participate in the ACA. So this was put in place as kind of insurance for the insurance companies, a way to help backstop some of the losses that they might have with members that came along that were high expense.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and the idea behind it is actually—I mean—it's a pretty legitimate idea, um, legitimate enough that you know, at the end of the day, even after after the program expired, a lot of states went back and enacted their own versions of reinsurance to help stabilize the ACA market for their folks.
0: Why do you think that the reinsurance program only lasted three years? That seems to me to be something that would last a long time. So why was it considered to only be a temporary program?
1: Well, so I had to give the caveat on here that this is kind of what I, the way I always interpreted it. I don't know if this is actually the right, right answer or not. But right, you're not a senator, so you didn't yeah, exactly. write the program. I, w- I wasn't uh, behind the scenes and all. of I the mean, authors, I'd vote for you though, just to be
0: clear. I would certainly, you know, uh, if Jr. was on the ticket. You'd have my <laughs> vote, my friend. So
1: thanks, buddy. I'm, a, I'm a, like one, you know, millionth of the way there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but you know, my take on it was that you know, really there was apprehension around the whole idea for insurance companies to be insuring people who formerly weren't insured. And so the design of the program was really around, how do we make sure that uh, as the federal government that we provide programs that cover for unanticipated um, claims costs of people who were, were not in the system before? I
0: see. So this is kind of that pent up demand problem that people were worried about, that people who had not been insured before would jump into the program and suddenly need Lots of care, or have problems that were previously undiagnosed that suddenly became diagnosed, and again, uncertainty. This is a thing that insurance companies didn't like, and so there had to be something put in place that gave them a little bit of certainty on
1: what would happen if that was the case. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the idea behind this is—I mean, it's pretty legitimate. I think across the country, we've seen that it's legitimate by the fact that there are a lot of states that have enacted their own versions of this program for the individual ACA marketplace, and. Typically, when it's enacted, you'll see that the health insurers that are are offering coverage are able to offer lower premiums because the program's in place.
0: Well, that's great. Thanks for explaining that to me. And then I think that that's two of the R's,
1: so we have one R to go. Is that right? Yes, one to go. And you know, this one got this one got interesting. <laughs> uh, so the third R was <laughs> was risk corridor, and the idea behind the risk corridor program was really, I, I mean, I'm going to way high level this, but the idea was if any insurance company makes too much money, they were going to have to pay a portion of that excess back. And if any insurer lost too much money, they were going to get some form of a reimbursement for the amount that they lost. So effectively, what it was, was kind of this true backstop on the financials for an insurance company that was willing to offer coverage. And so I think the initial thought on it was that you... In any, like in any market, you can have winners and losers. And the initial thought was, you're probably going to have a pretty even number of winners and losers. And the amount that the winners make is going to probably be equal to the amount the, the losers lose. But in reality, it didn't turn out that way. So just to give an example, in 2014, I think these numbers are final. Um, you know, The risk corridor claimants, like the, the insurance companies who said, hey, we're raising our hand, we lost a lot of money. Uh, there were like almost $3 billion worth of claimant dollars there. Companies that said, we lost a lot of money. We need some reimbursement. That's that's billion with a B. Billion with a B. Yeah. And on the other side of it, there were only about, you know, mid 300 millions with an M uh, worth of excess dollars. So it did not end up being a net neutral. There were m- way more insurers that lost money in aggregate or lost beyond that corridor amount uh, than what was anticipated, and so, as a consequence, um, you know I think there were some ensuing rules or laws or changes that happened. I know there are a lot of court challenges on this, but but effectively, what ended up happening is that a lot of insurance companies did not end up getting reimbursed for their losses.
0: Yeah, and that's why we saw in those early years that there were insurance companies that were formed and tried to come out onto the exchanges with ACA products and failed in those first three or four years.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because I think, and again, I might not be exactly right on this number, but I think there were something like uh, 23 insurance companies that were formed. like They call them co-ops, and they they offered insurance coverage under the ACA. And I think to date, there might only be like three left in existence, and the rest have have gone under. It
0: turned into a quite risky business and something that was very difficult for people to do. And a lot of these co-ops were companies that were formed by people who were not traditional insurance companies. So these weren't the United's and Aetna's and Anthem's and Blue Crosses of the world. Like These were hospital companies and doctor groups and state co-ops that would get together and form companies to try to insure. Because the idea was, hey, if we can go out and we can create an insurance product that's not so profit-driven, perhaps we can create something that is less expensive and will provide a better, better product for others. And Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, those experiments did not really go that well.
1: Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, man, Jay, we could go on and on and on around a lot of other avenues that this could head down. Um, maybe in the interest of time, why don't we call it for this one and start so thinking we'll, we'll about So we'll do a fourth path. R, which is wrapping up. Is that, <laughs> uh, is that what we'll have here? So with a with silent W? Yeah, that's right.
0: I, you know, and I do owe you a little item here before we finish. So I, you know, when you asked me, you said you didn't know what the word Halcyon meant Uh, at the beginning of the talk today. I was like, uh oh, because it's like one of those things where you use this word and then you're like, what if I'm wrong about this word? And I've just been using it wrong this whole time. Uh, So I looked it up. And so the actual definition of Halcyon is uh, denoting a period of time in the past that was idyllically happy and peaceful. Wow. So, yeah, that's I was talking about the Halcyon days of insurance. Pre ACA. And I think the other thing was wet behind the ears. Like really, you've never heard the phrase wet behind I, the ears.
1: I have not. I have not really? heard that. Yeah, okay. What
0: wet behind the ears means uh, somebody who's naive um, and, you know, young and inexperienced. And so I was, uh, I was making a reference to your relative youth back uh. in the days of 2014. But uh, I think the fact that you don't know the phrase wet behind the ears means that you're kind of wet behind the ears. I I think you're
1: right. That's inherently the. uh,
0: (laughs) uh, Uh, So I did just get a message from our fine producer, uh, Ryan, who went to a a pretty good school of journalism at the University of Wisconsin. I mean, it's not as good as the University of Missouri School of Journalism, but it's it's pretty good. Um, And what he said was that uh, the idea behind wet behind the ears is that it's the last place to dry on a newborn calf or colt. And if the calf is still wet behind the ears, it means it was just born. Ah, oh, look at that! Seems like something that um, that, a, that a Wisconsin guy might know because they have a lot of dairy cattle up there. I understand. Well, thank you, Ryan. I just lost all of our Wisconsin listeners, didn't I? Like every every badger in
1: existence just turned off the podcast. Yeah. If you just say "go badgers," you'll correct yourself there, and it'll be fine. All right, all right, go go badgers. Yep, there you go. Perfect. There we go.
0: All right. Well, how about next time? I I think that we might do a part three of ACA. All right, and continue to talk because we still haven't even gotten into the exchanges. We haven't talked about the exchanges and what a gold plan is, and a silver plan, and a bronze plan, and how those prices all come to be, and what that means, and kind of the state of things now. Because we know what the market looked like in 2013, and now we know what it looked like in 2014, and in the years beyond. What's it look like today? It's uh, 2022. So who cares? about all this ancient history. Let's talk about some of the things that are, that are going on today. So maybe next time with the next episode of Explanation of Benefits, that's what we'll do. We'll just continue with part three of ACA, if that's all right with you, JR, my partner. That sounds wonderful, Jay. You guys might think that we have this all planned out and that this is just like uh, us trying to pretend to be spontaneous, but nope. We're actually deciding these topics as we go. Um, so that is uh, that, that's what we'll talk about next time. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited to talk to you next time, junior
1: I'm excited to talk to you as well. And as usual, any listeners that want to give feedback or request items Mm -hmm. that they would like to learn more about, we are always happy to take those requests. We sure are. And I think there's a link in the show notes that tells you where to
0: email those. Um, Or you can just email to podcast at patient.com. That is P-A-Y-T-I-E-N-T. We have a little play on words there. You get it. Patient. Uh, so podcast at patient.com you can send us questions requests for topics your recommendations on where we can get crabs rangoon all sorts of things that we'd be very happy to discuss on the podcast next time we see you so thanks jr i'll talk to you next time thanks for spending a little time with me thank you as always to ryan and morgan our excellent producers and the entire patient podcast production team we'll see you next time on explanation of benefits